ready to go? Revelation 4, turn over. The task before me kind of seems so absolutely impossible. Seeing the glory of God down the mountain and trying to explain what I've seen. I would just challenge all of you to study the Bible. Study the Bible. The glory of God that is revealed in the scriptures behind all kinds. How often have you asked the question, what does real worship like? Maybe you've been in a service where hands were lifted up. Now, that's real worship. Or maybe you've been in a service where there were a lot of people in a real high church feel. Very formal. Lots of people. Great hymns. And you thought, that's worship. Or maybe you've been in a service where emotions were fully expressed and people were yelling and amen and praise to God. And you thought, that's worship. Or maybe you've been all by yourself and just felt God's presence. And you thought, that's worship. I would suggest that all of these or none of these could be Hand-raising can be proof of worship or proof of performance. Loud music with thousands of people in union can be real worship or a great musical. Emotional expressions can be either genuine worship or misguided human emotions. Feeling God's presence can be experiencing God, literally, or experiencing a man-made God. So how do we know what genuine worship is? What does it look like? How do we know if what we're doing or experiencing or feeling is real or genuine worship? I would suggest we need to study what the Bible says is worship. I would suggest we... It would be good to examine what worship looks like as revealed in the Bible. I would suggest we need to compare our worship to the worship found in the scriptures. So turn with me to Revelation 4. This is what we're going to do today. Continue our look at a great worship scene in Revelation 4 and 5. I'm convinced that we could spend months maybe even years, just in these two chapters of this book. Let's read Revelation 4. After these things I looked, and behold, the door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven. And one sitting on the throne, and he who was sitting was like a jasper stone, and a sardis in appearance. 
And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments, golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne seven spirits of God. Before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf, and the third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night, they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who, is, who was and who is and who is to come. And the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders which will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. The magnitude is started last week this restoration of the creation. It began in four. We started by looking at this beginning and saw in verse one that these things 
are what must take place after these things. Look at verse 1 again, very important. He says, come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. It's the transition in the book. We saw that this was a letter or a section or this whole book that was written to encourage the churches in light of the persecution they were facing, the false teachers they were facing, the total depravity that they were facing from outside and their depravity within their own churches, not to mention the effects of the curse and the full frontal attack of Satan. These words were written to encourage the churches of who God is and that his justice is coming. We saw that this was things describing things which must take place in the future. So these are future events. We saw the setting for the worship first. We saw the setting for the worship first. We saw it was a personal experience by the Apostle John that included his senses and his emotions. We also saw that the setting for worship moved from the earth to a court in heaven before God's throne. We also saw that it was a vision concerning guaranteed future things. Which, were, which pointed to, again, the sovereign hand of God. The one who declared the end from the beginning. He said, this is what's going to happen in the end because I have ordained it. It shows that he is sovereign. This is what we, must, we saw in the setting. Remember, if God reveals what will happen in the future, then it means he is not bound by time. And space, and thus he is sovereign all over all the earth. And that's what we see here. This is sovereign throne revealed in the setting of worship. We also saw that the, the object of worship last week. We saw first that the Father was the first person of the Trinity in view, most likely. That he was on a throne. The throne of God, again pointing to God's judgment seat of rulership, where he hands down the sentence of judgment. We also saw that God is holy and just as seen in those two stones, Jasper and Sardis. And yet we also saw that God is merciful and gracious as revealed by the rainbow and the emerald in appearance. We saw that the object of worship was also revealed in what God was doing from the throne. Remember, it says, and lightning bolts and the sounds of the thunder which pointed again to God's holy justice. Remember, in Exodus 19, same concept as God hands down his law to the people of Israel. And then finally, we saw the Spirit's active participation. Look in verse 5, out of the throne come flashes of lightning, sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. <coughs> This was the Spirit's active, and pointed to the Spirit's active participation in purifying the world as represented by these lamps. These lamps were literally torches of fire that were pointing to the completion, the seven idea of God's completion and God's active justice on the world, which is coming. And the burning torches pointing to not just little flames, but purifying torches that the Holy Spirit was going to 
help to carry out the purifying of the world to come. So we see the object of worship. <coughs> now what we're going to do is move on and examine the worshipers and the worship. The worshipers and the worship. After seeing the just judge sitting upon his throne, ready to carry out his purifying judgment on the creation, how do the worshipers respond to this great revelation? What do they do? How do they react? Who are they? We see this in 4.4 and 4.6 and 7 first. The worshipers. Let's look at the worshipers. There's two groups of worshipers. The 24 elders and the four living creatures. Those are the two sets or groups of worshipers. Let's look at 4.4 four, and it explains the first group. The 24 elders. Around the throne were 24 elders, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Now, identifying these beings is highly debated. There are two main possibilities. Men, 24 men, or 24 angels. Which one? lean to. I'm not going to be brazen to say that I'm sure of this. I lean that these are angels for a couple of main reasons. Let me tell you. First, angels are associated with thrones and crowns in other places. Colossians 1.16. You can write these down. You can look them up later. Colossians 1.16, Ephesians 3.10, Romans 8.38, Psalm 89.6. Colossians 1.16, also, angels will be God's instruments of judgment, and this appears to be the focus of these elders. We'll see it as we go along. In Matthew 13, 41, and Matthew 24, 31, angels are the ones that are described as being the ones that carry out God's judgment, and they are instruments of his judgment as Revelation 14 will show, 14.10. Notice in 5.8, 5.8, look over. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a, a heart and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. These golden bowls of incense were bowls of incense or lamentations where they would pour them out showing and pointing to a judgment to come. Now look over at Revelation 8.3. Who pours out these golden bowls, censers? Verse 3, another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him, so that he might add to it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar, which was before the throne. So an angel is now associated with that same concept that's mentioned back in 5.8, which is a reference to the elders. Points to the idea. Also look at 15.7. not going to deal with this too much, but hang in there. We've got to get this. We need to at least have an idea of who's in there. 
Verse 7, Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. What? They've got these bowls full of the wrath of God. And this time it's angels. Again, are these elders most likely later being described as angels? That's where I lean so far. While the term elders, turning back before, while the term elders is used for leaders in the church, it could point to the idea of agents, <coughs> ones who have been around forever. This obviously points to, not forever and ever, but since the beginning of creation, would obviously point to who? Angels. Angels were ancient. They've been, they don't die, right? They started at creation, God created them, and they have been around for a long, long time. And much like the angels rejoicing over the salvation of men in Luke 15.10, or Luke 15.10 and 7, this happens again in Revelation 5.8, as we'll see later on. These same 24 elders say, Worthy are you to take the book in 5.8 and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation. So somewhat like how the angels rejoice over the salvation of a sinner, we've got the same concept. So, I lean that they're angels. Okay? However, this is not an open and shut case, and I may get to heaven and find out that these 24 elders are representatives of redeemed humanity. Either way, that's not the main focus. What is the main thing we need to know about these things? First, they are a select select group of beings around the throne. They are a select group of beings around the throne, and they are poised to worship. They're all about worship. They're a select group who have white garments, probably pointing to the purity, and golden crowns on their heads. And they are poised to do what? Worship. They are described as being ancient, thus having maturity, or knowing who really deserves worship. Very, 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 very important. They're ancient. They're elders. They understand who deserves worship. Let me give you an illustration of this for a second. If we go, we have a tendency sometimes to go up to children and think that they can give us great wisdom on things. I don't know why our world is thinking this way. Lately, we ask for opinion polls of children to see what parents should do. That's backwards. The opposite of the way things We should go to the older people in the world and seek wisdom from the older people in our world. Instead, we elect and go further and further down and elect for people that are younger in power. We need to be careful of this. Older people is who God tells us these ancients, these elders, know very well who deserves worship. Why? They are also representative, uh, representatives having crowns and being on thrones, which points to the fact that even the highest of heaven see the value of worshiping God over who? Again, 
We humans all too often think the world revolves around us. All too often the world should acknowledge things that we, the world should acknowledge my worth. Why don't I get a thank you every once in a while? Why don't I get a praise every once in a while? Why don't I get a pat on the back once in a while? This is how we think in our minds. Well, I worked real hard. Why don't I get a pay raise? I worked real hard. Don't I deserve this? So what is the tendency? We're up on our throne saying, don't I deserve to be worshipped? Don't I deserve to get praise? But the ones who are on the throne and have the white robes that are pure and are mature and ancient, who are they poised to worship? They know who deserves praise. And it's not who? Themselves. Genuine worship comes when you are totally out of the equation. Did you get that? If you get nothing else, it's not about your value. That's what we're seeking. 24 elders are the highest of high. And who are they poised to worship? God. So genuine worshipers, folks, are focused on God, not self, in their worship, no matter who they are. Let me say it again. Good point. Want to know if your worship's genuine or not? Here it is. Are you a genuine worshiper? A genuine worship is focused on God, not the Bible, not self, in their worship, no matter who you are. Genuine worship gets you out of the picture. Second, the next group, the four living creatures. Verse 6, halfway through. Four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. And in the center of the throne, around the throne, and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion. The second creature was like a calf. And the third creature was had a face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. So, who are these four living creatures? Well, I would suggest these living creatures are, again, most likely angelic beings. Maybe the highest, or some of the highest, of all the angelic beings. They are very similar to the angels in Isaiah 6 and Ezekiel 1. We're going to kind of compare them a second. They are like the angels of Isaiah 6 in the following ways. They ascribe praise to God that is very similar to the seraphims in Isaiah 6. This phrase, holy, 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 is mentioned three times, that word, three times, only two places. Isaiah 6 and here. So the seraphim in Isaiah 6 are very similar to these angels. They say the same thing. Second, they each have six wings, like Isaiah 6, 2. In Isaiah 6, 2, it says, seraphim stood above him, each having six wings, with two, he covered his face, that is, the angel covered his 
his face, the angel's face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. So they have six wings similar to the seraphim. So these angelic beings could be like those angels. What could be those angels? Let's keep going. And they are both in scenes previewing or prophetic visions previewing the coming judgment. Get this, very important, very, very, very important. We've got four angelic beings that look like the seraphim of Isaiah 6, and it's in a prophetic vision, and in that prophetic vision, it's highlighting a coming judgment. Where is that in Isaiah 6? Well, remember, God says, who shall ascend? And Isaiah says, what? Send me. And then God says, here's your mission, Isaiah. You ready? How, about, how would you like this prophet mission? Ready? See the glory of God. <coughs> Hear the glory of God. Who will send? Who will I send? You say, I'll go. And then God says this. He said, go and tell this people. Keep on listening, but do not proceed. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of these people insensitive. Their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and, and return and be healed. Then I said, how long, Isaiah said. And he answered, until cities are devastated without inhabitants. Houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it. And it will again be subject to burning, like a terebin and an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. What is that? That's judgment. Over and over. Go and make their ears dull. For as you proclaim who I am and what's happening, what will they do? Rebel. What's this? This is judgment by God. Judgment on the people for ignoring him and going against him. This is very similar. These four living creatures are previewing what? Judgment. It's coming. Revelation 6. So they're very similar. <coughs> huh? you got these. Are they seraphim? The answer would be no. Probably not. Why? Because they're like those angels in Ezekiel also, which are called cherubim. They have the same number and name as those in Ezekiel 1.5. In Ezekiel 1.5, within it, there were figures resembling four living beings. They have the same name, living beings, and they're the same number, four. In Ezekiel 1.5, they are full of eyes. Ezekiel 10.12 says, their whole body, their backs, their hands, their wings, and their wheels were full of eyes all around. The wheels belonging to all four of them. So they have the same eye problem, or I issue, not problem, issue. Eyes everywhere. That, that's hard to picture, isn't it? Eyes everywhere. It says within. What does it mean within? How can you have eyes within? You can't even picture that unless you figure that they have wings. It appears that maybe underneath they have eyes everywhere. They can see everything. We'll get to that in a second. The Ezekiel. In Ezekiel, the angelic beings had four faces. In Revelation 4, they only have one face. But 
Each one of the four, four angels are described by having one of the four faces that the cherubim have all four of. So, there is some similarities, yet they are different. They have four wings in Ezekiel, but Revelation has six wings. So, what's my conclusion? My conclusion is that these beings are alike the angels in Isaiah 6 and Ezekiel 1, but they are also different. So they are different angelic beings. They are similar but different. Again, they don't have to be the same ones, do they? No, they're a higher order of angelic beings. That's the point. So what's the main point we can know about these angelic beings? And it is important that you get to this. First, they are an exalted angelic group as seen by their close association with the throne. They're real close to it. Again, this is important. Get this, folks. So important. So very important. Exalted angelic group. Second, they represent a close relationship to those angels that were also exalted in Isaiah 6 and Ezekiel 1. Third, they play a key role in the execution of God's just judgment, as we will see. These angels play that huge role, as we will see in the upcoming weeks and months. Fourth, they are fully alert and aware of everything as seen by their eyes. Get this, one point if you get nothing else. The eyes. What is it? It's not just some weird thing that you need to think of in your mind. It's trying to get a point across. What would that be? They are aware and know and see everything. Who are they worshiping? Interesting. We'll come back to that in a second. If their wings function in the same way as Isaiah 6, they are fully aware of God's holiness as they cover their eyes. They are completely submissive as they cover their feet. And they are ready to serve as the two that fly point to. And sixth, the angels in a way, act as representatives of the entire creation. Listen closely. The lion, the ox, the man, the eagle, represent all of creation. In a sense, these four beings point to all of creation. Who are they worshiping? The creator, not the creation. If these perfect beings worship our creator, let me ask you a question. Perfect, angelic beings most likely have never sinned, ever. How much more should we who are wicked and sinful be worshiping God who has saved us by sending us? It's a great application. Do you get that? If these holy and perfect beings, all they do is worship God. And the highest of high, and all they do is worship God, how much more should that be our unceasing obligation? We who are wretched and miserable and have been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Do we have reason to worship? Absolutely. If these high and lifted up angels do it, how much more should we do it? Right here. Amen. Yes? 
Should your life be all about worshiping him? Yes. These worshipers do it. Holy angels worship God. How much more should we who have been redeemed? Sinners saved by grace. The genuine worships, worshipers worship God knowing who God is and who they are in light of God. I think it's important to try and figure out who these two groups are, but ultimately what they do and say is probably even more important. So we move to that. Let's look at what they say. The worship. We'll start in verse 8. Next week we'll get to verse 10. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six weeks, wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who, call, who sits on Let's look at these two responses of worship by the worshipers. First, the four living creatures respond to the glory of God. That's who we're going to look at first. Let's look at their worship. Notice their worship, their response. Their worship is continuous. It says, in verse 8, And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night, they do not cease to say, to be praised. Notice, day and night, they do not cease to say. Now this does not mean that they do they and say this all the time. What? But it says that. Let me explain. They don't say these same exact words over and over, all the time, for eternity in the future. Because as we will see in Revelation 6, 1, 3, and 5, and 7, that these four beings are a part of doing something, too. So what does he mean? This means that they are characterized by continuous worship. That they are all about worship all the time. The kind of action is that they are constantly worshipers. They are constantly worshiping God day and night. When Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 2.9, I worked day and night so I would not be a burden on you. Did that mean that he worked all the time and never talked to them and never ministered to them every single second? No. It means that at all times he was trying to earn a living not to be a burden on them while still doing the ministry to them. It's the same concept. This worship of God's great work is their consuming passion. Get that? Please, these angelic beings, these holy beings, their consuming passion is always about God and worshiping Him and speaking the worth of God. And even in their service, they are all about God's worth. Worship is all the time for them. Again, I think this speaks to our infinite duty to worship. Get this, please. If these perfect, holy, holy, the highest, the greatest of angels 
continuously are devoted to all the time going, don't look at me, don't look at me, don't look at me. God is great. God is great. God is great. Worship, obedience, doing what he says all the time. If these holy beings are like this all the time, how much more should we? Shouldn't our lives be all about God? I mean, from the moment you wake up to the moment you lay your head on the pillow, your lives, your thoughts, your actions should be constantly all about Him. Do you agree? That will solve all your problems. Do you listen? Do you hear me? I'm not going to teach you a message of how to make your marriage better. I'm not going to teach you a message of how to good, make good grades. I'm not going to teach you a message on how to obey your parents. I'm going to get this across. I'm begging you, get this. Worship God all the time. And your marriage will be fine. You will obey. And your grades will be fine. And you will worry about nothing. Because your focus will be on who? God, not self. But these holy, angelic beings who have never sinned are continuously devoted to unceasing praise of God. How much more should we? Sinners saved by grace. You see why I always have broken Will you come back to that? Who is your life about? Yourself, the God who sits on the throne. Who is your life about? The worship also includes a proper understanding of God's word. <clears throat> Look at Revelation 4. They do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty. We sang the song again this week. Anybody think it? Sunday for the next 30 years and still miss it. That's why I'm, the more I say this message, the more I'm like, I'm singing it. <laughs> By the way, we're singing it again next week. You know, the holiness of God is not one of those things that we just go wrong. This is cool. Let's just bring up chapter God. Cool. Holy. No. Holy is wow. There's four far separate from me. The distance between you and me is infinite. The glory of God is far beyond anything that I can even comprehend. But who is speaking this? The highest of God's creation. These four angels, these angelic beings, 
that have never sinned. <coughs> never. Not one time. Never sinned. And how do they describe God? Holy, holy, holy. Why do they repeat it three times? Probably for emphasis. Probably just emphatic. You are far separate from me, God. Who are we to stand in judgment of God on issues that are hard? Even the theodicy question. Who are we to stand in judgment and say, oh, God, how could you be this way? With these angelic beings that have never sinned, can't even look at God without saying, you are far distant from me in glory and honor and separateness and sinlessness and perfection. Who are we? Oh, God, have mercy on us. Do you not agree? We take God and we go, wham, I'd like you down here on my level. When these perfect angels say, no, God, you are far beyond separate than me. to God's separateness from everything and everyone. He is set apart from all others. He is unlike creation. He's sinless. He's different. There is a great chasm between God and the creation. While it appears God's throne is surrounded by other beings, God is distinguished as the most holy of creatures as far more holy than even themselves. One can note that the four living beings had never sinned, as I mentioned. They were spotless, perfect. They had no sin nature. They were perfect in the outworking of their morals. <laughs> but even these holy, these holy creatures say God is holy. This week I was on a blog. I might go blog. I've been writing on every one of those things that they give me the gospel every time now. I'm not on this blog. Please get off this blog. This group of so-called preachers that he runs with were talking about how they should call themselves saints. Brother Michael might actually change to Saint Michael. Start calling themselves Saint Michael. Now, fully aware that you should understand this, that all genuine believers are what? Saints. But nowhere in the New Testament does a genuine believer call himself a holy one, which is what <coughs> saint means. Okay? Nowhere. You know why? Because all holy ones know the holy one. And they're not about who? Themselves. Our lives, folks, are not about us. I don't walk around going, oh, I'm the Holy One. If there were any beings that could have said that, who would it have been in this worship scene? The four angelic beings. But notice, never do they give praise to themselves. 
Never. What we should say, we are foremost of sinners, as the Apostle Paul says, right? How do you view yourself in light of the holiness of God? By the way, that is one of the keys to genuine worship. A proper understanding of your unworthiness in light of his worthiness. His holiness in light of your unholiness. That's where genuine worship comes from. From this we can glean genuine worship is acknowledging God's great work, not ours. How often, folks, are you about yourself? How often are you about your rights and your supposed deserved praise? How often do you think, why don't I ever get a thank you? Why don't I ever get a pat on the back? Well, the moment you say that statement is the moment you've lost sight of the Holy God. You're thinking about who? Yourself. And you can't worship if your focus is on yourself. And if all joy and all glory and all contentment is found in worshiping the only true God, then you are stuck in unhappiness, unjoy, and worry, and fret. Folks, worship is a privilege. But as you see the holy one of God, you don't want to do anything to worship. Second, notice they acknowledge God's sovereignty as mentioned. Praise the Lord God is a combination of the two titles, Lord and God, curious and curios uh, and theos, and the lordship of our God. He is Lord and God, sovereign ruler of creation, that of the creation that he has made. Next notice is omnipotence is mentioned, or is omnipotence. The four living beings state, God is the Almighty. Probably a reference to the Old Testament name, El Shaddai, God Almighty. It points to God being all-powerful. Here we have some of the most powerful beings in all of creation that God's going to use to literally carry out judgment on the earth. And who do they claim all power to? They don't go say, they don't do this. They don't go, look at me. I'm powerful. They go, Look at God, the all-powerful one. Again, they understand his omnipotence. So genuine worship includes a recognition of God's great work, the work that he's holy, that he's sovereign, that he's omnipotent, and finally that he is eternal, his eternality. This phrase was used previously to describe God, but this time there's a slight change. The emphasis in Greek is usually on the phrase that's moved to the front. Last time we saw in four and one four. Look, one four. He's, God is described as the one who is and who was and who is to come. Who what is and was and is to come. Notice the order. Turn over to four. And now these angels say, who was and who is and who is to come. The order is changed. I'm struggling with this. Because I turned the wrong page. 
The order has been changed. It went four from to four A. The emphasis now is on God and his eternal past. That God has been forever. The emphasis is on his historical eternality. That he's always exists even before the beginning of creation. Which who were there really close to the beginning of creation. The angels before they would know. They would emphasize he's always been. He was there. God is outside of time. He is eternal. They get it. Finally, notice the final observation concerning the four living creatures. Their worship comes from the highest of creatures. Remember how they are described. Again, these are the all-seeing beings. I said, the eyes. Why the eyes? Why the eyes? They see everything. They see everything. Now, think about this. Angels. How long have they been around? Most likely, angels were created in the very beginning of creation. Okay? doesn't say God created the angels, but Genesis 1, 1 implies God created. Right? Angels are implied to have been created at some point at the very beginning. They have looked. These angels have eyes. And God has given them the ability to see everything. And they have been around for a really, really long time. Right? And they have seen everything. Uh, it reminds me a little bit of uh, the air show yesterday. As great as the air show is, seeing those powerful jets go by, and wow, seeing these great big things that you can walk up in. My limited view of what is great is very small. It's got about what? 22 years of seeing great things. These angels have been around since the beginning, and they have seen everything, and they are aware of everything. And who is the object of all their unceasing worship? God. They get it. They understand who deserves worship. They get it better than maybe anybody. They fully understand that God alone is eternal, that He's holy, that He is the beginning, the sovereign, the creator, the one who is eternal. He is the highest of angels. These angels, the highest of angels, say God is the highest of high. In light of this, how in the world can we, who are such wretched, temporal, small, beginning, young, Immature people look up and give glory to anybody except for God. How in the world can we be all about our own praise? Do you see the futility of that? If all-knowing, perfect beings that have been around since the creation of the universe are constantly continuously worshiping God all the time. How much more should we do it? How can we leave for self in light of this glory? How can we make
make any decisions about our comfort and our glory and not defer to God's glory and his holiness. We'll get into 24 worship hours next week. What does worship look like, folks? This is it. Beams totally focused on God. Continuously worshiping just Him. Acknowledging just His work. Not seeking anything or something. That's what worship is. We get that, then there's genuine worship. It can be with singing, or it can be without singing. It can be with loud music, and soft music. It can be with hands held high, or no hands at all. <coughs> It can be in a high church feel or a real contemporary feel. It can be in all those things as long as God is the object of worship and we aren't. We're not the focus. He is. On the same token, worship is not just on Sunday. You cannot come in here and say, okay, I'm going to start worshiping today. Here we go, turn on the switch. Worship time! Oh! You'll miss the whole thing. You are not going to just turn on the switch and start worshiping God. Worship <coughs> must be. Whether it's in your closet, in your room, or in front of your children, or in front of your spouse, or wherever you are, at your job, wherever you are, worship must be all the time. That's good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this reminder of your holiness omnipotence, your eternality, your sovereignty, your glory, your great worth. Oh God, help us, Lord, to worship you alone. Oh God, help us to worship you in our obedience to you. God, help us Thank you.